0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Quick note before we get started. We had some connection issues with Don during the beginning part of our conversation, so we went ahead and recorded an intro to Don's background and the subject matter included here. If you're already familiar with the concepts and Don's background, you can skip to where we start talking to Don at around the 21 minute mark. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe, tell your friends, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. And with that, we'll get started. Good evening. How's it going?
1: I'm doing well. How are you this evening?
0: Doing all right.
1: Good. So tell me, we're, we're kind of interested in this. You've been interested in science productivity for a while. Is that right?
0: That's right. I, I've been interested in this issue of science productivity after learning a lot about secular stagnation, tech stagnation, um, and just seeing what I feel is a certain there seems to be a big difference now between the research coming out and the research and the advancements we made in the 20th century. So So, it seems like we were, you know, we had all these huge Titans in the 20th century and I've had this thought that, well, you know, people say things have gotten a lot harder, right? But we still understand so little about the universe. It seems like there's so there would still be many areas where we could make Large, inv- large advancements in just basic research. Okay, and,
1: would you just define secular stagnation for us before we go further?
0: Sure. So we've talked about it a little bit. So secular stagnation is just a condition where there's little or no economic growth. So growth in the U.S. has slowed immensely versus what it has been in the past. And um, Larry Summers, I believe, coined the term secular stagnation. I think he had a book on it. And I, I've always thought, well, growth, you know, this is the kind of the Robert Solow model um, that, uh, you know, technology is downstream and of science and uh, economic growth is downstream of technological growth. And so my question has always been, well, it feels like science has slowed down. And what can we do about, it? you know, what can we reasonably do about that? And I've, you know, i for a while, I thought maybe just the incentives are out of whack and maybe if we had more research bounties. So I thought about what if we took a, a research bounty approach to the problem where we actually just paid people to try and solve problems that we have. Um, and I was exploring this idea and I thought, you know maybe there's a startup here, I don't know. But before I you know, launched into anything, I wanted to kind of comprehensively read all of the literature that was out there on the subject of um, science productivity what's gone wrong exactly, how it's gone wrong. And in that process, I kind of found um, Don Braben and his book, Scientific Freedom.
1: Okay, so you you think there's a direct correlation between uh, technical productivity and science productivity, which seems reasonable.
0: That's right, yeah. So you could imagine that you have to do the basic research on, let's say, electricity before you can get
1: the light bulb. And then there's obviously there's probably many ideas that we take as gospel today, science ideas that we take as gospel for today that are either just wrong, they're not correct, or they're unexplored in that they're much larger than we think they are.
0: Right. there there, there always seems to be things that are unexplored. The you know, there's this idea of paradigm shifts and um, the structure of scientific revolutions, you know, they always say, "Well, you know, all the old generation has to die out before new ideas can kind of filter through," and um, there always, there seems to be plenty of, you know, it, of course, it's difficult to point them out because if you knew what they were, you'd be working on them presumably. But um, there's still plenty of secrets left in the universe. There's plenty of things we don't understand. And so th- that's why I, I, I find arguments about things getting harder. They could be slightly harder, um, but we're also a lot smarter than we used to be and we have more tools. And so I think that probably balances out at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, it seems sort of a lazy idea to say things are just harder than they used to be.
0: Right, well, and, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? So like yeah, you still have to true. solve the problem. Um, that's-, that, that's not an excuse to uh, work less hard, I would
1: say. And, and, and that seems to, uh, there seems to be this, Question that involved with this that there were all these giants, scientific giants that we know about that came up these big ideas, and then they suddenly seem to have collapsed. And we don't, and we feel like we don't have those um, giants with big ideas anymore. So yeah,
0: definitely, you know what happened to all the weird people with the good ideas? You know they're, yeah. they all seem to be gone. Um, you even see this. Recently, there was a case where a scientist at Harvard, I believe, it was a chemist, and he was. They, they found out he was selling secrets to China. You know, military secrets, and so they put him in federal prison, as you do. And it was it was striking to me because he was always dressed up in a suit. You know, he has these pictures that of him at Harvard, and he's always in a suit. And it's a really weird thing. You know, there's no sartorial rules here that, you know, hard sartorial rules we should follow. But it is notable that, you know, he's not, you know, a wacky guy in a lab coat. You know, he's kind of like dressed up like this salesman. It's really interesting.
1: So we've, you've been able to identify sort of a point in time really where sort of the dinosaurs became extinct where the giant seemed to, with, the, with these blue sky ideas disappear that's
0: right well it's weird there, there's a great website we've talked about it before and it's like what the heck happened in like 1972 or 1970s it's, it's right around there maybe it's 1971 um it, it, if you look at all the growth curves if they start heading the wrong direction then things uh seem to start stagnating then anecdotally you know, we go to the moon, and then Woodstock happens, and then that's like the classic Peter Thiel line, and then um, things just kind of like flatline a little bit in terms of growth, and it's really interesting because one of the things we found is kind of this shift to more directed research in 1970. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that strike me. One of the things that struck me after having uh, work with the background, this podcast was, I thought we it, it might be appropriate to call this You Can't See the Forest Because of the Trees. Because when I started studying basic science was in the early 70s when the shift occurred. And so all the people you studied in basic science then, and probably even today, those big ideas, the ones that Einstein and Rutherford and Planck and all those guys had preceded just almost... I almost came into studying science when, they, when all that ceased. And it never struck me that now for the last 40 or 50 years, none of those big ideas really, like you said, have occurred. So um, that's one of the things that struck me about this. And then, um, so there was something really important that happened about 1970 scientifically, and that was the Apollo mission. It was the uh, uh, getting manned to the moon.
0: That's right, and before before we go too much further, I want to. We should mention what directed research we mean by directed research. So, uh, before nineteen seventy, and perhaps earlier even, it was it was the case that scientists could you know you would get your PhD, you get a position, and then you were fairly free to go about and um, do your research. So you didn't have you didn't have to go in front of all these grant committees. You know, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough money where you're essentially free to do what you want and explore what you want, which is very different from today where you have a very robust grant process. And when you have a grant process, it it creates competitive pressures. And on top of the competitive pressures, you have to get good at winning grants to be successful. Um, and when you have to get good at giving grants, um, it's a problem because how do you select people? Well, you have a jury of their peers. Well, if you have a jury of their peers and let's say you have a new weird idea that let's say uh, kind of invalidates a lot of common knowledge in your given field. uh, By definition, when it's a new idea, you don't have much evidence to back it up and it's a wacky idea. And so people won't accept it and you never get off the starting blocks, so to speak. And we started giving grants to try and speed up scientific progress. So if we think about Apollo, we think about the Manhattan Project, we think of these giant kind of government run run military industrial complex uh, projects, which were very good in that you were able to speed up scientific progress immensely in the short term. But I think the long run effect is that it's not, it's not a sustainable progress. Like you can do that once, you can do that maybe twice, but after you do that, um, you need to go back to this kind of other mode because you can speed things up, but when things get super bureaucratized in order to make things happen, you know, I'm reading a book by General Groves. He was the Army Corps of Engineers, um, General, Brigadier General who managed the Manhattan Project. And he was awesome at it. He did a really good job, uh, but he did have to force everyone to, you know, each person had to you, know, you need to solve this specific problem and you have this deadline. And it was this really incredible management problem um, to kind of get it pushed through. But if you kind of have that process and you expand it out over time, I think it, it works less well. That makes
1: sense. <laughs> And, you know, it, it's not directed research can work very well. We, we've got the perfect example of that today in the coronavirus vaccines. We uh, tasked science with um, coming up with vaccines. And, and they, there's two novel technologies, the mRNA technologies, that have proven probably to produce several of the best vaccines, most effective vaccines we've ever had. Yeah. So it's not that you can't solve problems that way. It's just that you also need some balance, we think, and what the, the giants, the dinosaurs of the past did when they just had these passions for different subjects and devoted their lives to them and, and, and formed the basis, the foundation, a lot of the, the current foundation of what we understand about the world.
0: That's right. And I think there's also, there's a difference between, let's say, sprinting to create a vaccine which we kind of know, like we know what vaccines are. We ha- we understand the concept and inventing the concept of a vaccine. You see what I'm saying? Right. Even though it is like, it's an advancement, but the the difference, you know, the advancement of the COVID-19 vaccine is still small compared to coming up with a vaccine period. You see what I'm saying?
1: And it seems like in, and when we started pursuing solving problems with research, directed research, which that works well. And in doing that, we sort of abandoned the, the blue sky research where we just, and we need both because we need to still discover and understand the world better than we did, which is the basis for other types of research like vaccine research or space exploration, um, other energy exploration. So you need both and we've sort of abandoned one um, in our pursuit of the other.
0: Yeah. And and even, even then like, so directed research is more like I have this problem and I'll pay someone to to solve it, if that makes sense. And blue skies research is more like, well, we're going to go explore the universe and try and solve these mysteries. Um, Which is, I I think part of the problem and, and reason why we stopped was, you know, there's an explosion of universities. We produce a, quite a few more, phd candidates than we did in the past they're much less effective i think because there are so many um you have to be much more guarded against abuse if that makes sense Um, and there's a lot more people competing which creates competitive pressure and then you have to figure out how to divvy up the funds because there's not enough spots there's a glut of researchers and how do you determine who gets what
1: and it seems part of the part of our problem is that in and when we have directed problem solving, when we can, we can identify the problem, that's fine. But there's a lot of problems that you have that you don't know. You don't know that you have them because you don't know enough to understand the subject. And that's, that's what undirected research does. The blue sky, the venture research answers those questions. Like, what do you, what do you not know? What problems do you have because you don't simply understand nature?
0: That's right. And I think it's very important. Do you remember the Rumsfeld speech? It's like, known knowns, unknown knowns, yes. unknown unknowns, you know? Uh, it, it is one of those problems. Like, we, we don't know. And, and when we talked to Don, that, that was a big thing. You know, you're, you're not sure what's out there because by definition, these things are, uh, they're hard to find. They're not always readily apparent. And like Don will mention, you know, Max Planck worked, for twenty years to on on a, on one problem, and to think that someone could do that today is just kind of it's it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable to think some researcher could just sit you know sit down and like think about one problem for twenty years.
1: But and and but there's an entire subset of wonderful minds, great minds that have just this natural curiosity. And, and they tend to be the most creative people. Right. Um, they come up with these big ideas that we don't even think about. And, and, they, and, and to use them for directed research seems like a waste of resources to me.
0: It is. But also, I think one of the big takeaways I got just in talking to Don, and I've, I've thought this for a while, especially in relation to Blue Skies research, there are not that many of these people. If that makes sense, so because you have to be in the right place, you know, you obviously have to be smart. Uh, you have to have the right perspective and the right ideas, and the people that truly make kind of transformative discoveries, like Einstein, Planck, you know, Teller, you name it, they're few and far between. Does that make sense? It's not everyone that can do this, and you know, I, I've I've actually listened. You know, I've heard people ask, you know, Don. Well, couldn't you, you know, couldn't everyone be like this? You know, wouldn't this be great? And the truth is, it's not for everyone, right? Because his approach is okay, we're going to find smart people and we're going to fund them to freely pursue their problems. And there are few people that can do that themselves, right? That are self directed enough to go out and keep exploring and, and figuring things out. And um, I, but although I think we could all benefit from a little bit of uh, of that, I don't know.
1: Um, I wonder if part of the reason we think this is because we don't cultivate what the, the talent that we have. For instance, uh, not everyone can be a truly artistic stone worker or painter or musician. Um, there, you have to have a passion for something and you have to have some natural gifts. That's probably what, what, you derive your passion from is just just an intense love or caring of something. So we don't really cultivate that much. So it's hard to say that these people aren't out there because they have a very different, there's, there's a very limited opportunity for them.
0: That's right. So I I guess, well, and and it's also just in the case of blue skies research, as we found out just talking to Don, there aren't, you know, there's only so many Einsteins, there's only so many Max Plancks, right? And uh, the important thing is selecting the right people. Like it it really is important to find these people and get the right people the resources they need. And it's not very much money, uh, but it's something we've gotten very bad at and it's incredible. All the weirdos have been selected out. Um, It's like an evolutionary process. So we're about to talk to Don. Can you tell me a little bit about Don?
1: Um. Don um, has, has an interesting scientific background, but he really enters into our story uh, when he uh, went to work with BP, British Petroleum, um, and they were starting a, uh, a venture research division. And um, we got to talk to Don from London uh, the other morning before the sun rose.
0: That's right. Okay, time.
1: <laughs> and uh, he's a, a very interesting person. Um, you probably want to give him a little more background about the book that he wrote that we read. That's and, right. And then we can, uh, and we can then we can cut to Don.
0: That's right. So Don originally, uh, Don Braben, PhD, I ought to add, he had this idea that and realized that scientific freedom was incredibly important, and that things had gotten so bureaucratized, especially with peer review. Long story short, he ends up at BP and they ask him to you know, help create a, uh, a, a research unit, a new research unit. And so he came up with this idea of venture research, which is really interesting. And like we've talked about it, and Don will explain it here in a little bit, and venture research is giving money to the right people um, and giving them complete freedom. And it's usually small amounts of money and just not directing them. He, he would talk with them he'd go david you know what is your project what are you interested in and um anyone could call so you know i could call you know i'm not a scientist but i i could say you know i've got this brand new uh let's say energy source it's potatoes you know if you rub potatoes together it creates like nuclear nuclear fusion and this is great and he'd go that's great will um well how um how does the how do the potatoes create nuclear fusion and I would go, well, I don't know. And he's like, okay, well, you're a quack. He's like, if you ever figure it out, well, give me a call back. He never says no. I think that's a really interesting thing he does. Um, he always just says, well, uh, and, and it's a great selection mechanism, right? So instead of just aggressively calling, he's all he always leaves the ball back in your court. And I think that's really important because when you're first, you know, working on ideas, um, it, it really helps you germinate those thoughts. And he he, he doesn't discourage people as well. And, and his alt point is also, you can tell. You can tell if someone is full of it, so to speak. Anyway, uh, so Don, he starts this at BP. It's incredibly successful. Uh, do you have any of the numbers? I, I can't remember how many, let's see, venture research
1: success. Uh, one of the things I called Don's attention to, <clears throat> which we'll get to um, and, and speaking with him is that Stephen Davies was one of the um, projects or or, uh, investigators that they funded. And as I understand it, they would give them $100,000 the first year. Then they would sit down and review them after a year and refund them. So they didn't just fund them for 10 years. They refunded them every year. Isn't that correct?
0: So what they did was they supported venture researchers for three years at a time. Support could be renewed and often was. On renewal, they just asked themselves whether what they were doing was still challenging. Some programs ran for nine years or so, so you know sometimes they could keep getting extended. And it was incredibly, incredibly successful. Um, yeah. And in the show notes, uh, I'll include. There's too many to count the the kind of advancements that everyone in the venture research program came up with, but a huge percentage of them were successful and the amount of money spent was so tiny compared to let's say the total U S research budget, uh, federal research budget. It will quite frankly blow your mind. So I'll, I'll include some notes to that and we'll roll the tape. Okay. Our conversation starts with Don discussing pioneering venture research in the early days at BP.
2: I started in 1980 with a completely empty office and, um, and with no excuse at having, uh, uh, if I were to fail in the future, I couldn't blame anyone because I had complete freedom. I could do anything I liked. So, um, so I derived a strategy of looking for, uh, um, looking for people who would radically change the way we think about an important field. And um, that became venture research. So um, that is the th- that is the guiding philosophy, which which uh, uh, guides everything we've done since then, to look for researchers who would radically change the way we think about an important field. Um, but still, we, so we decided not to advertise that the wrong people would apply if we advertised. So I went round the universities. In first of all, in Britain, uh, then in Europe, then in the States. I spent three weeks in the States, exhaustingly go from to 21 universities in three weeks, <laughs> giving <laughs> talks about venture research, and inviting proposals. People could come and and propose. Well, most of them just as a uh, um, uh, as a meal ticket and just tried their latest whiz whiz idea on me. Um, uh, anyway, we, we did find uh, t- uh, two or three people from the first visit, you know, that I met, and uh, they turned out to be really good people. So that's wh- how that's how venture research came about, um, and that's more or less. Uh, uh, it's it's pretty vague, you know. Uh, I didn't, you know, sit down and uh, and deliberate you know it, it, but it took it took 2 years for it to uh, uh, or a few years for the precise for, for what we should do and how we should do it now we are not we uh, we are not uh, uh, um, uh, looking at virgin territory here uh, you know we've had in the, in the 20th century there were lots of people who who uh, who who did what they wanted to do um, and uh, but since since the start of the century, uh, about about 1970, um, the government changed governments. Governments everywhere changed the rules, you know, over over a over a period, um, because you, because they expanded the number of universities for, for for political reasons and the number of university academics. So uh, up till about 1970, academics everywhere more or less had total freedom. In other words, universities had had a, uh, uh, um, an amount of money, which they more or less doled out equally among their faculty, and the faculty could do anything they liked, as long as their re- as long as their requirements were modest, and um, and that harvest, the harvest from that was was the was the Planck Club, in fact. That's that. That's how um, people like, uh, uh, like Max Planck, who, who worked for 20 years on, on, on his work, 20 years. Thermodynamics, you know, uh, uh, at, at the end of the 19th century, nobody thought it was worth bothering with. You know, it was, it, it, was not, it was not important. Why the hell are you wasting your time with that? They told him. But then he, he made his monumental discovery and, uh, and he radically, absolutely, dramatically changed the way thing, everything was done and set the pattern for, for the 20th century. So I named this, uh, this, this club, this c- collection of scientists, after Max Planck. And, uh, and it includes Einstein, Dirac, Rutherford, and all the other people who came after him. All the pe- people who made radical changes to what to uh, 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 their field. Uh, but nowadays, of course, because of the increase in the number of academics, and, uh, and um, then, the gov- then governments had to find, or funding agencies, I should say, because governments don't really control research, but funding agencies do, they, they change the rules. Now, you know, academics are noted for their ind- individuality. You would expect each country to have a different arrangement, but they all have identical arrangements. You know, every country in the world has identical arrangements. They all uh, 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 um, insist that when a researcher has an idea for a research, he, he, then, uh, he then writes it up, he's got to write it up and send it to them. And they then send it to his competitors to ask them what they think about it. I, I, I'm putting the, 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 <laughs> I'm putting an edge on this, of course. <laughs> they don't see it quite like that. <laughs> but that's what it does turn out to be that the people doing um, the judging are in direct competition with those being judged. Uh, uh, maybe not at that time, but sooner or later they will be. And, uh, they, and, and, and you know, scientists are people, you know, uh, 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 so they will uh, uh, um, never miss an opportunity of just getting the boot in, you know, uh, 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 on somebody. It's told done anonymously they can say what they like. They only have the reputation to consider. So that is the universal method that the uh, 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 funding agencies ask the, the ask the opinions of the uh, uh, of of the, of the of scientists with the most relevant experience in that field, and uh, which means they're competitors, of course. Uh, and uh, and then they make their judgments. So, Success rates, overall success rates in this process are 25%. And that's, and, and universities, by the way, have their own arrangements when you have, you know, before you send it off, you've got to get the university's permission. So they have committees to look at what, you, what you're doing and, and decide whether or not they will forward it. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, it really is ridiculous. But, it, but nobody will criticise it publicly, because if they criticise it, then when they, when they come to write proposals themselves, then this will be remembered. And <laughs> at least that's what they think. And so it affects what it's done. So, um, it's a bit of a mess, actually. So anyway, uh, uh, we, we, we set out in 1980 to do, to do our thing. Uh, we got 10,000 proposals uh, in, uh, over the ten years that's about a thousand a year uh, which a small group a group of two or three um, uh, uh, scientists more or less uh, um, these are recruited from BP so uh, uh, BP gave me their high flyers you know they the are people destined for high office in in, 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 in the um in the organization, and I had them for two, three, four, uh, two or three or four years. Um, uh, I even had the offer of the future chairman, John Brown, <laughs> but I was outbid. I, I could only offer him a grade 12, and BP Gas offered ding- him grade 14. <laughs> um, so uh, I- I'm rambling on. I don't know if I'm making any sense.
0: No, Don. This um, is where are we up to? This is great. So you mentioned um, kind of a, a bit briefly about your selection process and how it differs from the current peer review process for selecting projects and funding projects. Um, how would you select these people? I know you said you would go to the universities, you would talk to people. You know, how do you find someone with a transformative idea? Um, is it just a feel thing where you, you talk to someone, you, you go back and forth and you get an idea for their problems and, and, they, um, well, and I don't know, what's that like? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you don't
2: know, of course, when you meet someone for the first time, uh, whether they're going to be a venture researcher uh, in, our, in, in our definition. So you just have to talk to them. Um, now, uh, when people used to come to us, uh, 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 at least half of them um, thought we were uh, 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 um, we were looking for getting oil out of the ground. You know uh, <laughs> that, w- w- that what we were doing was related to BP's main mainstream activities. Now BP has has a research director, John Cadogan. He w- was at the time, and his budget was more than two billion two thousand, but. Well, it was never mentioned, but it was only one or two or three million. You know, it was microscopic compared with his. Now, he was responsible for BP's general health. So uh, in determining our strategy, I determined a strategy that would not compete with him, you know, or with anybody else in the world. That was, uh, uh, um, I was determined that we should be known as the Venture Research Unit, you know, because... All other companies look to universities for ideas, but they all were all were related to get, uh, to their to their business activities. What we were looking for is completely uh, uh, um, uh, for ideas out with those the, the, those specifications. So we'd get them to talk about for, for, uh, so having uh, disabused them, so to speak, of that fact, we, we started to, to, started to talk to them we have got to get them to relax. So you talk about the weather or football or whatever you like, uh, and uh, you slowly work around to what they really really want to do. The point is trust. Unless the researchers trust you, they will not tell you what they really want to do. Unless we trust them, we're not really... uh, uh, um, Then they were uh, 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 to to use the money as they implied that they would Then the system would fail, so there must be mutual trust, and so um, we started from the outset to develop that trust. And in developing that trust, came that then their ideas slowly emerged. Uh, With some people like um, Bennett and Hesla Harrison, for example, that happened in ten minutes because their research director, when he introduced me to them, he said, "I would support." Support what they want to do, but what they did, what they want to do. Uh, he was then the director of the Plant Breeding Institute. Uh, what they want to do is so far out with what we are able to support, you know, uh, uh, and indeed any research council, any single research council in Britain would be unable to support that. We can't do it, and uh, and that took me ten minutes to make up my mind. I determined then that we must support this. And, and, you know, more or less promised them then that we would support it. Now, I had a board to convince, of course, you know, so that was quite uh, uh, something. But anyway, we did get them to support within six months and they did some revolutionary work.
0: So, Don, do you think it was helpful to have a smaller budget and that you didn't you weren't forced to try and allocate the capital? You could you could kind of naturally let it progress and and find the right people, make sure it was the right people that you were kind of directing money towards
2: well the problem is priorities um when you start a venture research activity you have to uh, uh, you have to have absolute selection criteria that is what the plank club um have they should not be influenced by any fashion anything going on today now uh, you, uh, 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 once you have once you've decided on what you will support, you will have to support every single proposal you hear about that meets those criteria. So you can't decide in advance how big your venture research proposal will be. It will probably be very small. I mean, uh, in in a BP uh, uh, for ten years at least, um, I was never limited by the budget, I, because I didn't even think about it. And uh, this was one of the first issues that the researchers coming to us in, in London or, or, or uh, uh, indeed in uh, uh, um, anywhere at all, um, they, they wanted to know how much money we had. And I said, don't ask that question. What you must assume is we have an infinite amount of money and you can do anything you like. <laughs> um, one guy uh, uh, called Rukula from CERN proposed that we build Two intersecting rings, gigantic rings of proton accelerators, uh, um, um, thousands of miles in diameter, uh, 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 around the Earth, looking for uh, looking for proton uh, neutrino interactions. It was just ridiculous. It would cost billions. He said, "Well, what's that to BP?" <laughs> we turned him down, of course. Well, we didn't actually. Uh, we just he he went away. It, he it was a joke. Got it. So, uh, but back to your serious question, you you must support every single proposal that meets that seems to meet your criteria. So that means you have more or less about one, two, three, four a year uh, 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 for, for for our small unit, um, and so uh, uh, we uh, we carried out a sort of um, uh, uh, how, how 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 could you describe it. Um, an experimental um, componental um, activity in venture research and we would hope that other people would learn from it. Uh, um, other people, other oil companies said we will have to set up our own venture research activity but we will have to suit it to our requirements. This is what Exxon said because uh, um, I happened to uh, Dudley Hirschback who was a Nobel Prize winner, um, and, and we supported him, he was also an advisor to Exxon. And he went to BP and said, why don't you do, do this? And that's what they told him, you know, we, we would have to adjust it to, to suit our requirements. <laughs> well, that, I, I knew that I wouldn't have to worry about Exxon ever again. <laughs> and that's the problem today. If, if we go to people, they must decide to support any, any, uh, 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 any research, that offers to change, radically change the way we think about something important. Interesting. Without, it, without priority. You must not have priorities. That's the killer. The killer today is priorities. And who sets the priorities? The scientists. You know, the scientists chosen by the funding agencies. It's, Got it's, it. it's a bizarre situation. You have um, uh, people writing proposals, radically challenging conventional wisdom, and some of the people responsible for defining what conventional wisdom is are chosen to be the referees for these proposals.
0: Interesting. So, so, Dot, I, I, I'm curious. There seems to be tension between. I, I'm reading a book about General Gro General Groves, uh, the you know Army Corps of Engineers general who managed the Manhattan Project. It's his autobiography about the project, and there seems to be tension between. Um, you know directing work directly at objectives um to kind of hyper speed things up versus the process of discovery and, and doing the things like the Planck club like, like max Planck did where he takes 20 years to go explore a subject um and it seems like we've got too much objective chasing and not enough just empowering people with scientific freedom to go explore the ideas um that they're interested in do, do you think that's a real effect that's a real trend
2: well, uh, um, it, it, it's essential uh, uh, um, when uh, uh, somebody coming up with a venture research proposal will almost certainly contain a theoretical element, a substantial theoretical of element, a new substantial theoretical element, which no one has yet come across. And so this uh, 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 more or less guarantees that its peers will not agree because they, the, because it's a new theory, not tested, and, right. and can be dismissed, you know. Uh, um, you just have to listen to what they're saying, what what the scientist is saying, and, and whether or not you believe them. Credibility is everything. It, well, 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 with trust, of course, you know, it's less of a problem, because if you trust somebody, you don't uh, always ask, is he credible, because you trust them. And... Uh, uh, it isn't. It isn't easy, uh, right. sometimes we, 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 uh, um, we. Well, not sometimes. Uh, uh, apart from Bennett and Hasler Parson, uh, most people. We took, you know, so we took about six months or, or even a year to make up our minds. But we we were always honest with people. We were always we always told them at the end of each meeting. Well, we're not quite yet convinced of what you want to do it, uh, would, would, would fit. Uh, uh, our definition of venture research, and you, but if you might want to consider what we've said at our meeting and come back, and uh, and that's what they did. I mean, so we were testing their perseverance, if you like, their dedication, because you've got to be dedicated, you know. If you, uh, it's no good, you know. Uh, um, uh, and, and people often suggest, you know, but but surely you you can easily be hoodwinked by people who say, you know, thermodynamics doesn't work, and you and and so. I had a simple way of dealing with such people. You take, you believe what they say. You'd be saying, "Okay, thermodynamics is rubbish. What's the next step?" Right. That is the killer
0: question. (laughs) They don't call you back.
2: They never could answer that. You see, (laughs) so I didn't have to worry about them.
0: (laughs) That's that. That's that's great. That's that's really interesting. Uh, Don, do you think research? has gotten more difficult just on the level of our, you know, finding out new things about nature, or is it truly just uh, the human problem of getting the right people, the resources to uh, make the right discoveries?
2: Oh, it's not that um, uh, you've got to be a scientist for a start. You're right. going to be trained as a scientist and you've got to spend 10 years or, 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 or certainly a, a number of years, uh, doing um, mainstream research, but um, before you come, can come across an idea that radically challenges that, uh, right. that, so um, uh, you've just got to give time uh, for that process to take place. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, you uh, 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 each of the each of the people we uh, 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 we spoke to, we just we just talked to them. About what they, would, what they really wanted to do. And eventually, you'd get, you know, the, the, uh, uh, um, there were, at each meeting, there would be two or three of them and about uh, uh, two or three of us, you know, on, 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 a, on a little round table in London. And after a certain time, it would become obvious to us, that is, you know, our two or three, that these people were venture researchers. We never had to discuss it interesting you know what they were because what they were wanting to do was so radical and we believed they could do it we sometimes visited the lab to kick the tires so to speak to make sure that the you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that it was all okay um, but the amount of money they required would be very modest venture research is very cheap so uh, uh, people talk about high risk uh, uh um, low reward you know th- which is just madness Why anybody should support high-risk research, why the funding agencies should support high-risk research, to me, it's just mad. Why should anybody support you if they expect you to fail? (laughs)
1: Exactly.
2: (laughs) So with venture research, it's low-risk, high-reward. The risk doesn't enter into it. We don't even think about the word risk. That's what scientists do. They take risk, you know, uh, and uh, um, every time. But they're expected to, to, um, to, to look into the future when usually the vision of the future is limited to a few days, right. you know, uh, 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 if they're doing decent research. You know, uh, um, that is research that really does meet our criteria. So to ask them to, uh, uh, um, a few years ago, they, they asked researchers to, 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 to say, what would happen in 50 years? They, they, they very soon changed that, of course, because they realized it was ridic- utterly ridiculous
0: that's great. I, I really like that framing. So Don, you mentioned how cheap venture research is. How much do you think it would cost to set up a similar um, operation today like the one you did in the 90s with BP?
2: Well it would it would the, the costs would be the same. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the cost of research have gone up, of course, so that uh, but each each project would be no more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, and, uh, uh, and if you had a small team, say, if, if BP or Exxon or uh, uh, Rush or any of the big companies were to set up a venture research activity, then uh, it would cost them um, about 20 million over 10 years. You know, or, or, sorry, that's 20 million what, B, what it cost BP. That was uh, in 1980. So that might be 50 million now. So, uh, uh, it, it, but we're talking about tiny amounts of money for big companies, and uh, and and it does, and and, and the, the benefit to them is enormous. I mean, the benefit to BP in the '80s was astronomical. Uh, you know, their recruitment uh, uh, um, uh, went up, their reputation in the universities because we were supporting uh, the, the, these radical guys went uh, all went up. It was a win-win situation. And it was only the political situation that you uh, 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 rated at the end that you know, cost us. That we had a, um, there was a managing director at BP. Um, uh, um, and, and we had him for, uh, this is after Jack Burks. We had Jack Burks for two years, but then he retired. And uh, he was succeeded by somebody, the name escapes me for the minute, a, a, a senior moment. <clears throat> and he was succeeded by a, a managing director, who I can't imagine how he got to his position. <laughs> you know, he was just stupid, and uh, <laughs> he didn't, didn't agree with anything we were doing. And uh, and um, one day we got I got a call. He was on a trip to New Zealand, and uh, I was told to be at my desk at nine o'clock. Because uh, Basil Butler would call me. And uh, he closed down the unit. He said, BP can no longer afford the drain on its resources. This is a, com- you know, it's just, it was just so ridiculous. Why didn't you go to Shell? He said, I mean, it was just utterly ridiculous. So I said, well, if you think that B- Adventure research is worthless, why don't you give it to me? Well, that that uh, that was uh, that put the cat among the pigeons, as they say. <clears throat> <laughs> so I worked on that, uh, and I went to the, uh, went to see the managing director, who'd been in, in loco parentis, so to speak, who'd been uh, charged with looking after me while Basil Butler swans around the world. And uh, and he he said, I don't agree with what Mr. Butler has done. You know, I don't agree with the the closure of the venture research activity because. You, uh, 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 you are the most um, sophisticated uh, organization in BP, you know, you get the, the most value for money, the most bang for buck, and, uh, and I think that was the reason that, that closed us, that the research director and Basil Butler got to put their heads together, decided that I had to be stopped <laughs> because I would undermining, you know, uh, peer review, for example, Peer review uh, 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 was rubbish, which it is.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's all right when, you know, if um, peer review works most of the time very well. I mean, it's not universally bad. It's just that uh, it never works for people who are wanting to radically change the way we think. Then it's maximally wrong. But for, for, for most research, for, most pe- for what, what most people do, it's actually um, fine; it works well. Uh, but, you, but 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 uh, um, most scientists privately criticizing it, criticize it for the same reason I do. Um, uh, um, and uh, I, I've lost my thread again. Um, they, they they criticize it. What was I said What was I talking about?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> oh, good. About uh, peer review and and why scientists oh, peer review? Yeah, yep. yeah,
2: yeah. Um,
1: I've lost my thread. Well, Don, let me redirect you just a little bit and see if you remember Stephen Davies that started um, Oxford asymmetry. Oh, I remember him very well. Could you use him as an example? Like economically, I'm not sure what it costs to support his project initially. But Oxford asymmetry was bought for three hundred and twelve million pounds when it went public. Is that does that sound reasonable? Oh, it's good. It's right. It's accurate. Yes, that can be checked. And so, do you have any idea about how much it took for to to fund his initial research and and start what he did? Well, I've just
2: said that the venture research was about. Um, uh, then it was about fifty thousand a year. So. About, about between fifty and uh, one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand pounds over three years, and um, w- w- I, uh, we supported him for six years, or six, or, or, or even nine years. I can't remember. Um, we, 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 uh, uh, he was renewed several times. So it was. Uh, 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 it, it is uh, 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 a massive, profitable activity. At, at UCL, by the way, we haven't spoken about UCL. I set up a venture activity in UCL uh, with the backing of the vice provost and, uh, uh, in 2008. We've had one proposal. Uh, we've had 50, uh, 50, uh, 50 applications about, and this one proposal has cost 150,000 pounds over three years. This was a largely theoretical study. Uh, this is to, you know, today. But since 2008, Nick Lane, the person who was uh, 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 involved, has attracted £5 million of external funding. Oh, wow. I mean, it if any demonstration is needed of the value of venture research, you know, currently, because BP is 1980... 1980s this is now you know he's now he's now working at UCL well, when he can get into the lab that is <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> which isn't very often of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Don that's that's really interesting and you talked a little bit about your work at UCL with venture research you know what do you think the next 15 years 10 years five years look like for venture research across the world and I know you start you've talked to Stripe, Patrick Collison, Collinson a little bit um about the practice, but, um, is it just attracting, uh, more people, more funders, uh, to follow this approach or is, what, what does that look like for you?
2: Well, there's been that, um, uh, I, I, haven't come across a, a surfeit of funders. Um, I still get the odd idea, you know, from UCL, I get the odd proposal. I just finished one just a, a few weeks ago, but it wasn't venture research. Uh, and so, um, uh, it, it's, it requires somebody, uh, um, my vision for the future, you, you ask about, you know, uh, uh, what's your vision for venture research for the future, uh, I, I would like to see, because, you know, I'm now getting on a bit, um, I would like to see you, uh, uh, individual universities take up, appoint someone uh, to look at um, their university's uh, candidates for this invite proposals from them now it would support you know uh, uh, maybe one proposal in 10 years as we've done at ucl and this may not impress a lot of people you know if the annual spend is zero you're not going to be very <laughs> impressed are you right. But the process is exciting because you each year you each person you get a proposal from you don't know whether it's going to be the next einstein you don't, you know, the, the, the odds aren't very high, but uh, you don't know that. So you have to look at ev- every proposal and, uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, you never say no to anybody. You always say, uh, but what about X or what about Y? And then re- listen to their responses. Um, so I hope that uh, uh, um, a few universities in the UK, a few in the US, a few elsewhere would set up their own activities. Uh, the, the, um, the, the senior people, uh, uh, the, he would be very senior probably, um, uh, but they were given carte blanche to derive their own rules, can, but uh, as long as they didn't use peer review or consensus or any of the uh, fashionable ways of doing it now, and then look for completely new initiatives because there must be lots of them. I mean, this, w- we understand very little actually. You know, I, I mentioned that peer review works very well, when when the knowledge base is 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 sound, but look at look look what's happening now. You know you've got um, uh uh, uh, uh w- w- we understand only what what na- uh, 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 less than five percent of what's going on in the universe. We don't know about we don't know what to do about gravity. We we don't know about consciousness very much. We don't uh, uh, origin of life, which is Nick Lane's thing, is still primitive. So so it makes no sense. Therefore. For research councils for sorry, for funding agencies to set priorities because there's so much we don't know.
0: I really like that. I, I really Don, this this has been really quite interesting. Uh David, do you have any
1: other questions? I could sit here and talk to Don all morning about some of this, but I'm just <laughs> impressed. I'm impressed by. It. it seems like a lot of the problem is the bureaucracies that get involved with research, and sort of inhibit it. Yeah, bureaucracy is a, bureaucracy
2: is the killer. Um, uh, uh, scientists have always had to deal with bureaucracy, but um, when uh, um, when we uh, had the system b- when uh, before 1970, they didn't. They weren't weren't too bothered by it because they could get on with what they won't wanted to do i mean they might be regarded by their colleagues as nutters uh, uh, like the, no <laughs> doubt uh, max planck was regarded for a long time uh, before he came up with this major discovery even then planck didn't believe he planck was so amazed by his discovery that he didn't believe it <laughs> he didn't believe it <laughs> It was so bizarre (laughs) that energy should be quantized. You don't, that just doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) So, bureaucracy would, uh, if bureaucracy had been able to strangle what Max Planck was doing at birth, it would have done so. It would have crushed his, uh, 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 he would have had to be extremely determined to resist uh, the external pressures on him. If... They had been organised, uh, and that's what bureaucracy needs organising. Always, of course. Um, so we want to set up a situation where scientists, serious scientists, can can think about what their fe- in their field. What are them? What are the major problems, and how are we going about solving it? You know, um, and that will then may lead them. Through a new theoretical element, maybe uh, um, to new ways, of, uh, 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 proposed new ways of doing things. It is not easy, though. It's not easy to to select such people. But yeah, I say you have to talk to them and keep on talking to them until you until you convinced that they would be a good bet, a safe bet.
1: Don, there I mean, seems to be them. a parallel between. Um, even today, we needed a vaccine for the coronavirus and turned yeah. it over to scientists. And in 12 months, less than 12 months, they've come up with these beautiful vaccines. But now the yeah. bureaucracy doesn't seem to be able to get it into people's arms. Yeah, well, that
2: is impressive. It is impressive. <laughs> um, uh, and I think they've uh, they've used Blue skies research, you know, uh, uh, over the last 20 years, and um, uh, 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 to design these mRNA uh, uh, um, uh, virus, uh, uh, virus antidotes. And um, it's, it, it is impressive.
0: That's great. So Don, um, do you have any parting thoughts? I, and, and where should people find your work if they wanna read more? I know you have a book out with Stripe Press. It's excellent. That's actually where David and I um, found your work. You you
2: you you've seen the book, have you?
0: Yes, they we actually both it. read it. It's excellent. Hmm?
2: You've both read it. And well, there's yes. one after that which is called the Plank promoting the Planck Club. Have you okay. seen that?
0: We have not read that you, one yet.
2: You haven't read that one. Well, that's about that's really the story of of, of Max Planck et al. You know, um, uh, um, the, the the story of physicists in the in the first twenty years was of this of the twentieth century was just remarkable I mean that they the, the, uh, they had disputes galore you know because they <laughs> but they were all working together uh, uh, to solve the problem of quantum mechanics this problem has still not been solved of course <laughs> as everyone knows uh, it goes on and on uh, it is uh, an amazing story. Um, and I only hope that there will be some people in some university. It only takes one other, maybe. Uh, uh, it, it always takes one person in any organization with, who has influence to recognize that what we're saying, it makes serious sense. And it doesn't, uh, 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 they must protect that organization because you know, basil, the basil buttles of this world are always willing to pop up and screw you you know what? so you've got to have you've got to have some sort of an undertaking from from an organization that it will support you come what may because the because the cost is so small
0: that's right and the, and the rewards are quite high as well
2: and the rewards are astronomical
0: yeah that's great well, Don. Um, any other parting words? I, I really want to thank you for coming on. I, I've learned quite a bit. I'm sure, David, you have as well. Um, and we really enjoyed your book. Um, I'll include a link to the the book where you can purchase it in the in the podcast notes for everyone.
2: Well, I, I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed you too. I, I I'm a bit un, incoherent at times, but uh, um, put that down to age. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Don.
2: Oh it's a it's a pleasure Will and David thank you very much too
0: thanks don adios well that's our show for today i'm will jarvis and i'm will's dad join us next week for more narratives